Heavenly Father, gracious God, we rejoice in your goodness and salvation. We pray that that joy might infuse our conversation and our learning today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my might, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in their conceit. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has come to the help of his servant Israel for he has remembered his promise of mercy, the promise he made to our fathers, to Abraham and his children forever. O oh Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and bring down retribution for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, do not take me away. Know that on your account, I suffer insult. Your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd, a flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall become like a watered garden, and they shall never languish again. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will give the priests their fill of fatness and my people shall be satisfied with my bounty, says the Lord. When you finish reading this scroll, tie a stone to it and throw it into the middle of the Euphrates and say, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disasters that I am bringing on her. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise the words of prophets, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do this. 
There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. This is the testimony given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. All right. Wonderful. So um, we are looking at Jeremiah now through the lens of the third Sunday of Advent. The third Sunday of Advent is called Goodite Sunday, which is a Latin word that means rejoice. And so we've been talking about how each Sunday of Advent has a theme and how they go in order. The first is hope. The second is preparedness. We prepare on the foundation of hope. And that then leads to rejoicing. And I want to make a distinction from the beginning uh, and parse out the difference between joy and rejoicing. Joy is the fruit of the spirit. It is an experience we have. It is an emotion, but rejoicing is a verb. So we might find joy in the gift of our existence. We might find joy in the smile of a child or walking in nature, but rejoicing, not joy, but rejoicing is what Advent 3 is all about. And rejoicing is tied to celebrating a victory. Whenever one is victorious, they rejoice and in the context of scripture, a victory is always a military victory, right? Rejoicing is what you do when you win a battle. And so we heard the song of Moses to start. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider have been thrown into the sea. This is God triumphing over Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army over 400 years of slavery, a real enemy has been defeated. God has been the one to lead that charge. So Moses does not feel joy. Moses rejoices, right? Because there has been a victory. Uh, likewise, we heard a portion of the Magnificat read. This is what Mary says when the angel tells her that she is to give birth to the Messiah. She rejoices. She talks about how God has shown the strength of his arm and scattered the proud in their conceit, how God has cast down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. This is about a victory that God has secured in bringing this child into the world. And so the Magnificat is very much like the Song of Moses. It has to do with rejoicing. And I say that because once we read Jeremiah, it becomes very, very clear that Jeremiah, even as he is encouraging the people to be faithful in exile, that even that is embedded in this larger desire for God's victory. We see that in Jeremiah 15. Oh, Lord, you know me, remember me, and visit me. That's an amazing thing to say. Jeremiah prays for God to visit him, which is what the Christmas message is ultimately about, God visiting the world in and through this little child. But then Jeremiah says, bring down retribution for me on my persecutors. 
And so God is not, I'm sorry, Jeremiah is not just praying for the Lord's visitation. He is praying for the Lord's victory over who his persecutors. And I'm going to go ahead and skip to this passage that E.V. read from Jeremiah 51, verses 63 and 64, because that is where we find out who his persecutors are. And these are the final two verses of the book of Jeremiah. It's how the book ends. And, you know, like any English teacher will tell you, the beginning and the end of a book are really, really important. And this is how the book of Jeremiah ends. When you finish reading the scroll, tie a stone to it, throw it in the middle of the Euphrates and say, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disasters I will bring upon her. And so here... Jeremiah proclaims the doom, the defeat of Babylon. Now, this is worth talking about. Who is Babylon? Are we talking about the historic nation state that brought ancient Israel into exile? And I'm going to go out on a limb, and it's not really too much of a limb because I'm in good company with many theologians here. I don't think that the Holy Spirit is suggesting that the primary Babylon that needs to sink like a stone uh, is this ancient nation state that took Israel into exile. Uh, for one, we've been studying how in Jeremiah 29, uh, Jeremiah writes a letter to those in exile, and he basically says, work for the welfare of this city, for in their welfare, you will discover your own welfare. And so we talked about how, in an odd way, even though the exile was a result of the people's failure to obey the covenant, it was also a way that God was pressing his people to live into their vocation to bless the nations, right? So Isaiah 49, 6, I've given you as a light to the nations that my salvation may extend to the ends of the earth. Well, the people are not doing that willingly, so God's going to send them into exile, so that they can bless Babylon, so that they can work for the good of that city. Um, we also have instances in scripture where God uses Nebuchadnezzar and talks about Babylon, his servant. Now, of course, there are many instances, and we've already studied them, where Babylon will be held accountable for their sins. They too are part of the sinful human race that must give an account to God. But to suggest that Babylon is somehow, and I'm talking about literal Babylon, to suggest that they're somehow uh, singled out as needing to sink, never to rise again, I think would be to miss the larger plot of scripture because by the time we get to the book of Revelation, Babylon is used as a metaphor. And so for instance, Revelation 14.8 um John the seer writes, a second angel followed and said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. And of course, the book of Revelation is not talking about ancient Babylon, which by the time Revelation was written was like every other civilization, far uh, gone and extinct. But, you know, Babylon here is probably a metaphor for Rome, but more importantly, Babylon is a metaphor for any kingdom where sin and death and pride and selfishness reign, that Babylon 
then becomes a symbol for the kingdom of man, right? And so whenever Jeremiah says, thus shall Babylon sink in the river, I'm hoping that images of baptism start to surface, right? Babylon sinks in our baptism. Sin and death sink in our baptism, never to rise again. And so why does Jeremiah end with Babylon sinking? Because Babylon then becomes a metaphor. It becomes symbolic for um, sin, death, the kingdom of the world. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jeremiah the prophet was writing symbolically necessarily. You know, Jeremiah was a complicated figure. The Holy Spirit and Holy Scripture work on a lot of the same levels at once. And so the ancient prophet may have been proclaiming doom upon um, this very specific kingdom. But as those who take uh, a, a more holistic view of Scripture, and kind of read Christ back into the Old Testament, uh, who allowed Jeremiah to inform Revelation, but Revelation to also inform Jeremiah. Uh, I think that we as Christians read Babylon in a much more holistic sense. And so in Jeremiah 15, when the prophet prays, bring down retribution for me on my persecutor, Babylon, that is a prayer that all of us can pray, Why, right? We pray that God would defeat the forces of sin and death, the powers and principalities, all that corrupt and destroy the creatures of God, that God would visit us and defeat those enemies. And of course, that's what Christmas is about. That's why Jeremiah is a good Advent text, because Jeremiah's prayer, remember me and visit me, is something that God does and that we celebrate at Christmas, and that this is a defeat, right? This is why we rejoice, because God has conquered an enemy. But that enemy, it's no longer Egypt. It's no longer Babylon. It's no longer the Gentiles. It's no longer the pagans, but rather the twin forces of sin and death that have infected God's creation. And so how do we celebrate? Well, Jeremiah tells us, we eat the words of God. Your words were found and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. And so, you know, there, there's a lot of resonance here with the gospel of John. Um, I mean, this imagery of eating the word, right? So in the gospel of John, we're told that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then Jesus looks at his disciples and said, Unless you eat my flesh, you have no life in you. That's really interesting. Word becomes flesh. Jesus tells us to eat the flesh. We are to eat the word, to take in the word. And then Jesus says, why? So that my joy may be in them. And so their joy might be complete. So eating the word uh, and experiencing joy, these are themes that are woven throughout scripture but are found in the book of Jeremiah. And so as you and I think about what does it mean to rejoice in God's victory, taking in the word of God, both Bible reading and God's promise, this is a big part of how we do that. 
And when we do that, according to Jeremiah 31, our life becomes like a watered garden. That's Jeremiah 31, verse 12. Our life becomes like a watered garden. Um, and I hope that images of Eden are now popping into your head because Eden was a watered garden. And exile, right, exile in Jeremiah, we've been talking about how that's a metaphor for being exiled from Eden, right? So yes, they were exiled from Jerusalem uh, into Babylon, but that is uh, a microcosm of humanity's larger exile from this watered garden that is Eden, right? Genesis chapter three, we're kicked out. And in a million different ways, we've been trying to find our way back home. And um, the Lord's salvation is about restoring our life to this watered garden. And so that's Jeremiah this theme of rejoicing, of God defeating Babylon, of Babylon being symbolic of the forces of sin and death. Now we get to our readings for Sunday, and I'm going to single out 1 Thessalonians and the Gospel of John. Paul writes, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. So when Paul says rejoice always, remember rejoicing is tied to a military victory. It's tied to conquering. So when Paul says rejoice always, he's basically saying be mindful of God's victory. And this is why we can give thanks in all circumstances. Paul does not say give thanks for all circumstances. Right, You can think of many circumstances in your life that you should not give thanks for. Um, you know, if you get a, a difficult medical diagnosis, if you have a, a child that is struggling, if there is political turmoil, if there is a broken relationship, I think it's a false spirituality to give thanks for these circumstances because these circumstances aren't reflective of how God designed us to live. Um, but the whole point is that these circumstances have been corrupted by sin and death and sin and death have been defeated. So we give thanks not for the circumstances, we give thanks in the circumstances. And we do so for two reasons. Number one, because we believe that God will redeem all circumstances. To go back to Jeremiah 31, the Lord has ransomed Jacob. He has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. And so whatever circumstances in your life are less than ideal, the victory of God is to ransom, to redeem, meaning that one day, you know, to quote the Lord of the Rings, everything sad comes untrue. Um, those circumstances will be fixed. They will be healed. So that's one of the reasons we give thanks in them, because we know that uh, the manner in which they are less than ideal will be repaired by God in the fullness of time. But second, we give thanks because we know, as Paul says, that in the end, all things um, work for good for those who love God. Now, I know that E.B. has a different translation of that verse, but, uh, but I think that once she tells us what it is in a moment in our discussion, the same principle is going to apply, that basically there is no circumstance that 
we experience that God can't use to sanctify us. And that's what Paul writes. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, that these less than ideal circumstances can be used by God to bring our spirit more um, aligned with God's heart. And so that all is the victory of God, both the defeat of the circumstance and God's capacity to shape us into more faithful, faithful people in the circumstance. The last thing I want to say with the Gospel of John, we have this great line when John confesses uh, the most five important words in the Christian life. He says, I am not the Messiah. I am not the Messiah. And that might be very obvious to you that you are not the Messiah. You might understand that intellectually. But my guess is that we all have some place of our heart where we pretend that we are, where we pretend that we can fix our life, where we pretend, pretend that we can fix other people. And everything in Jeremiah has been pointing to this Messiah because the victory belongs to the Messiah. We rejoice in his victory and his inclusion of us in that victory. But whatever joy and rejoicing and gratitude is, all of that is going to be blocked out if we don't take these words to heart. I am not the Messiah. Uh, I can't fix it. I can't do it. Um, you know, what is this great line uh, from Jeremiah? We've been redeemed from hands too strong for us right? Um, we need saving from forces too strong for us. And so whatever joy we experience, whatever gratitude we experience, whatever rejoicing we experience, it's always going to be tied in some way to this acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord and I am not. Jesus is Savior and I am not. I am not the Messiah. And um, we can kind of unpack where we need to say that in our lives, but we rejoice to take it back to the theme. We rejoice because our Messiah has defeated forces stronger than us. We don't rejoice because he's given us the tools to do that ourselves, if that makes any sense.